1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode is brought to you by Great Hearts Academies, a nonprofit network of K-12 public charter schools offering a rigorous classical liberal arts education grounded in the best of the Western tradition. Great Hearts operates 34 academies in Arizona and Texas, serving over 21,000 students with plans for further growth underway. Great Hearts is in search of exceptional school leaders who embrace a classical and liberal philosophy of education and who possess a well-grounded vision for the moral and intellectual formation of the human person. Learn how you can join a community of classical leaders by visiting greatheartsamerica.org careers. That's greatheartsamerica.org careers. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Searcy Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy.
2: Last week, I started to talk about the question um, how does rhetoric teach us how to read? And to answer the question, we talked about the definition of rhetoric, the purpose of rhetoric, the parts of rhetoric the place of rhetoric. We didn't get very far into the place of rhetoric. And then I said I would make some specific applications. So what I want to talk about briefly now is the place of rhetoric. And then having covered that a little bit, I want to talk about applications. And so this is the, call it the practical part, if you like. So the crucial point about, you remember that the definition of rhetoric, is that it is the art of decision making in community. That the purpose of rhetoric is to bring harmony to a community. That the parts of rhetoric were invention, arrangement, elocution, memory, and delivery. Um, With all of that we can talk about the place of rhetoric and I think the crucial point here is to remember that it is a liberal art, one of seven Liberal arts. And so, therefore, its place is with its sisters, right? With the other six liberal arts. Or if you want to think of them as the pillars of wisdom, with the other six pillars of wisdom. Its place, then, the place of rhetoric is to be the third of the verbal arts. And those of you who have been in a few of these sessions remember that we've talked about the mathematical arts and the verbal arts. Both of those terms are convenient. Neither of them is adequate. But there is a big difference between geometry and grammar, although I was going to say there's a big difference between geometry and logic, and then I realized there really isn't. So we, we, think, we think about logic as a verbal art, but as harmony is um, a mathematical art, but one that brings everything together, in, another, in a sense, logic plays that role on the verbal side. It is a verbal art, but it has a way of kind of being musical, doesn't it, of, of making everything harmonize. And so rhetoric, then, is the highest of the verbal arts, not highest in the sense of most glorious necessarily, but in the sense of logically dependent on grammar and logic.
0: If I'm going to speak in public, and if I'm going to do so in a way that brings harmony to a community,
2: then I have to honor grammar and logic. And grammar, you'll recall, I hope, or maybe I haven't said it but around you, or maybe you haven't seen this, but grammar is, simply put, the art of interpreting signs, determining the meaning of something.
0: Okay, logic then is the art of ordering,
2: structuring a series of thoughts. Or you could say critiquing a series of thoughts. If you can't do those two things, if you can't interpret signs like words, for example, and I'll come back to this, and if you can't put your thoughts in an orderly way that is logically coherent, then you may be able to persuade but you won't be able to bring a very high level of harmony to a community. You see the difference? You might be able to persuade by going after the belly. You might even be able to persuade by flattering the chest, but you won't be able to persuade by appealing to the soul or to the highest faculties in the people that you're talking to. And so that's the distinction that rhetoric needs to honor. Um, you can never forget when you're doing rhetoric that the person you're talking to is the image of God. You can't forget that. all right, so so if that's the place, then the most important practical application there is that you do have to have a foundation in grammar, which is interpreting signs. Another way of putting it, it might be naming things, right? That might be two sides to the same coin. Um, interpreting signs would be. Would be knowing what somebody else has named something. Making signs is naming things. Okay, so that's grammar, and then logic is ordering our thoughts. That's oversimplistic. I understand. It's a, it's but it's it's ordering and critiquing. Okay, that's the place of rhetoric. What is the application of all that to reading? Well, grammar. The art of grammar, as a liberal art, is intimately involved in reading. And and logic is, too, because if you can't interpret signs, you can't read. Reading is signs put on paper. And if you can't think in an orderly way, you won't be able to read, because that's one of the things reading does, is it extends the orderliness. Have you ever noticed how much more orderly something written is than something spoken? Right. We we have amazing minds as humans. We can sit in a circle and listen to 11 people talk all at, not all identically at the same time, but, you know, in a time frame. And we can interpret what everybody's saying and we can do okay. But if you read something like that, it would really irritate you probably, unless it's a a novel. But then there has not, writing is artificial, in other words, not in a bad way, it's artificial. Okay. So, so let's take grammar and logic as subsets of rhetoric and ask, how do I apply that to reading? All right. To do this, I'm going to get really simplistic. I'm going to talk about the two most common forms of what we might as well call pop fiction. Okay, And those two most common forms are crime fiction, James Bond, uh, Inspector Morse, uh, Sherlock Holmes. I think there's a one or two others. Agatha Christie wrote some, yeah. Call it pop fiction, but it's crime fiction. It's when you're trying to solve a crime, right? The second thing we're going to talk about if, if well, let me ask you, what do you think? If crime fiction is the is the, is the one example I'm going to use, what would you guess is the other kind of writing that is very popular and something we can look at by way of analyzing common reading? All right, I'll tell you, it's a romance, romantic literature. So, so you could say, it's not really accurate, but you could I'd hyper-simplify and become sexist and say that crime fiction is for men, and, or is the male impulse, and then, and then romance is the female impulse. I don't know. I find that plenty of women read crime fiction, and well, I don't find very many men read romances, but they don't read anything. Okay, so, so, so what's going on? in crime fiction. Well, someday I'm going to continue not writing a a novel about a crime fiction that, that I've been thinking about not writing for 20 years. And the opening line will go like this. If you're part of a school, everybody knows that if you're part of a school, you're part of a conspiracy. And then it goes on from there. And what do you do when you're writing crime fiction? you drop clues
0: right you drop clues what's a clue it's a sign
2: so the name of my book that i'm never going to write will be it all depends on grammar and the reason it would be called that is because grammar has to do with interpreting signs but nobody who saw the title would know that they'd all think it depends on you know sentence patterns and depends is actually a latin word Dependere, and it means to hang. That's why you have a pendant, for example, around your neck. It means to hang. So you can imagine all the fun a person could have in a crime fiction book involving hanging and grammar and interpreting signs, right? In other words, what's going on in any crime fiction is that there's this detective or police officer or layman, whatever, who finds clues and interprets them. And what he's always asking himself is, what does this mean? So you can take the tools of rhetoric, and you can easily apply them to crime fiction by asking, what does this mean? Throughout. And then you can try to, you probably even could get skilled at at interpreting uh, clues in crime fiction, because it's all conventional. But you're always asking, what does this mean? That's a grammar question. Ultimately, you find out somebody did something. Then you ask the question, should he be punished? And that is the essential question of the, the, the judicial essay, the, judi- ju- the judicial address. And so in, in Lost Tools of Writing Level 2, by way of example, that is devoted to the judici- to judicial address. If you want to really learn how to read crime fiction or watch it on TV, Get Lost to those of Writing Level 2. It's not even directly trying to teach that, but that's one of the things it does. So using the tools of rhetoric makes you a better reader of pop fiction. Okay, Probably not your highest goal, but I wanted to show that. Also, it'll help you watch TV shows with this qualifier. If you watch TV shows and actually try to figure out the crime, everybody around you will become very annoyed. Because they designed the TV show so that it moves very quickly and you don't have time to actually think. And you notice that the the detective or whoever it is spent all the commercial breaks thinking really hard, but you don't get to. They they, they spend hours thinking in in the stories, but you don't get to do that. So there's an example of how rhetoric can help you read. Romantic stories. What happens in, I'm going to say every romantic story love story, I'm mean, a sitcom, or, you know, a romantic, a rom-com, what happens in every single one of them? At the very beginning of the story, two people come together, a man and a woman, and they hate each other, or they don't like each other. Why? Because one of them made some sort of a sign that the other one either interpreted or misinterpreted and made them turn against the other person. So in, in a, in detective fiction, you have a whole series of signs that have to be interpreted. In a rom-com, it's usually one or two signs. And you just have to figure out what it, the the person in the story has to figure out what, what did that actually mean? Now I am somewhat oversimplifying, but I think you'll be surprised how little I am. You, if you watch, if you watch pretty well any rom-com, the first thing you have to do is, is ask, how did humorous interpret that? And of course, you all know that men are masters of misinterpreting. So there you go. So that it's easy to do those. So th- again, the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean if I, if I pull a petal off a flower? Does it mean he loves me or he loves me not, right? What does it mean if he does this action here? Does it mean he loves me or he doesn't? And of course, you, what you've got is the inability of men to interpret and the insecurity of women to be comfortable with men who don't know how to interpret. That's the stereotype that movies are playing with. And I think it plays out in romance books too. So that's a, that's, that's a way that you can take the tools of rhetoric and be a better watcher of everyday sitcoms and whatever. But the reason it works so easily for formulaic TV shows and movies is because it's derived from, from something much higher. It's derived from something much higher. So let's take tragedy now. Okay, Crime fiction, raised up to a, to a really high level, becomes tragedy. And in tragedies, for example, Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov or Oedipus King, or, or Sophocles, um, Oedipus King or, or Antigone, in all of these cases, we have a bigger question, not just, what does it mean? But what we're directly confronted with is a much deeper question. And that question is, what is to be done? And here I'm, of course, quoting Anna Karenina. What is to be done? Oblonsky says in the very first chapter of of Anna Karenina, I think it's the first, it might be the second chapter, but I'm pretty sure it's the first. What is to be done? And that's what drives every single chapter in Anna Karenina. Not everybody says it, but every chapter, four or five pages each, Every single one of them revolves around some person who has to decide what is to be done. In other words, what should I do? And so we're to the should question, which is the essential rhetorical question. The author structures the novel around this, what is to be done or what is the should question. Now, it's vivid in Anna Karenina because people are actually saying what is to be done. But it's in every story. Most of them probably at some point say something like that. What should I do? most of them. An action flick is where you have so many decisions that the body just makes them and you don't. You, your brain doesn't, your body just does, right? Most of the time. So there's missiles flying at you and you have to move. That's, you know, what am I supposed to do? Well, move, that sort of thing. So, so in the Greeks, you're going to have a tragedy like Antigone. If we look at Christian uh, tragedies, like say Hamlet, same thing. Hamlet is looking at the whole world colossal, cosmically falling apart. Why is he so slow to act? Because nothing makes sense. I'd, I'd like to see you act in a world as, as, as completely broken down as the one he's, he's living in. Um, then, then there's a secular tragedy like, like death of a salesman. right? Now, now this is the hopeless form. You, you, but, but you still have the same question. What am I supposed to do? How can I get through this? So it's all, it's all rhetoric. Okay, what about comedy? Comedy, I think, real comedy, good comedy, like Much Ado About Nothing or, or say, Twelfth Night, you're still in the same basic question. What does it mean? What does it mean? But then, but then you're also having to make decisions based on your interpretations. So in Much Ado About Nothing, what are Benedict and Beatrice constantly doing? They're, they're, they're using words to cut each other up, aren't they? But what does it really mean? And then, and then these, these people in the background are saying, hey, hey, uh, did you hear Benedict talking about Beatrice and how much he loves her? And he never did. But they listen and they interpret. What does it mean? Right? Constantly, everything in Shakespeare's plays, you're constantly asking, what does it mean? You're interpreting signs. And that's why when you read literature like that, you become a better reader just by reading it for what it is. But you become better, you might go through a stage of paranoia, but you, come, but you become better just at understanding some of the deeper issues in life, some of the harder questions in life. Pretty soon you start dealing not just with the, the plot line of a story, but the themes that the author is, 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 is trying to get across. They don't come out to you because some teacher said, here's theme one, here's theme two, here's theme three. They start to lift off the page. You start to see, like with the magic eye pictures, remember those? You start to see those themes hidden away in the, in the story. And now it's integrated, and it's not test. It's not, it's not this disintegrated academic experience. It's, it's, wow, there's something going on here that, that really sings, that really challenges, it provokes. But that takes time, doesn't it? That takes dwelling on something. And so that's where rhetoric helps us read better. Another, I, I talked about tragedy and comedy. I'll end by talking about epic. You've heard me argue that the Iliad is the ultimate handbook for rhetoric. I firmly believe that. In in Book One of the Iliad, Achilles and Agamemnon are in a public setting, and they each are trying to make a decision about whether they should leave or not, or what should be done about um, about Um, About the, the fact that everybody's dying, what should be done about the fact that there's a plague, right? And they and they fall into a fight. They become embittered with each other, and everything that happens in the Iliad flows out of their fight, their public fight in the forum. I mean, not literally the forum; they're not Romans, but their public fight in a public setting. They each give powerful speeches. But both of them are overwhelmed by emotions. Both of them lose control of themselves. And if it weren't the goddess of wisdom, Athena, who stepped in, Achilles would have so lost control of himself that he would have destroyed the entire Greek, uh, the entire um, Achaean voyage. So what happens? 23 books, scrolls, chapters, if you like. And in every single one of those chapters or books, another issue comes up. In fact, you could go through the Iliad and read it like this. In every single book, you could say, "What's the issue that comes up in this book? What are the two sides? Who represents each side? What do they say about what? You know, what are the what are the um, positions each person takes? What decision is made?" And what follows from that decision? Every single book in the Iliad follows that exact pattern. Now, sometimes some parts are more emphasized than others, but you could go, you don't need any reading guide for the Iliad other than that. That's the, that's the reading guide that Homer gave us. And it's extraordinary because in book 24 then, it, books 18 through 24 in the Iliad have been described as the most perfect sustained poetry ever written. I'm not Greek. I don't know Greek. And I'm by no means anywhere near a great enough poet to be able to agree or disagree with that. But I will tell you that the last six books of the Iliad, if they don't tear your heart into a thousand pieces, you don't have one. And when you come to book 24, there's the most astonishing resolution. And a lot of people get to the end of the Iliad and they say, oh, it just ends. Why? Nothing. Just. Now, everything that was going on comes to a resolution in the Iliad, in book 24. And it's one of the most gripping pieces of poetry you'll ever read. But it's also rhetoric. It's a more private rhetoric now. And it it underscores that in Homer, there's two things we have to understand about rhetoric. One is that we can use it to destroy
0: our civilizations. This happens all the time. Communities are destroyed by the curse of unguarded rhetoric.
2: Or we can use rhetoric to bring resolution from discord. But it takes a long time for that to happen in the Iliad. And that's why I argue it's the most powerful book on rhetoric ever written most practical book you'll ever read on rhetoric. And really, I'm going to go so far as to say it's almost all you need to read to understand rhetoric. Let me, let me then throw out, you do need to read the Bible, because there's things Paul deeply challenges about rhetoric in there. And the Bible is so insightful on rhetoric. Christian rhetoric, I would argue, is fundamentally different from classical rhetoric. But it doesn't eliminate it. Right? It purifies it. It purges it. Okay, so I need to. I need to end. Oh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. I'm going to pick that up for my short question, if I may. Um, let Let me let me just say that Katie and I were doing this uh, atrium class this fall, and one of the reasons that the Iliad is prime on my mind is because it always is. But you know, another reason is because we were actually talking about it for this atrium class this fall, and one of the things that that we're looking at. And want to do is to weave the Iliad throughout the whole year and to p- constantly draw out the rhetorical power, the rhetorical lessons that the Iliad is teaching. So, if you are interested in more detail on this, take take a look. There's still seats in that in that atrium class. Um, so, in other words, it helps you read because it gives you questions. Okay, that's that's why it helps you read. It gives you questions to read with. But fundamentally, those questions are what does it mean and what is to be done? And those two questions that's what leads us to understanding. That's what leads us to practical insight, right? What is to be done? That's prudence. What does it mean? That might well be wisdom if we can really figure it out. And therefore, it really is the case that the goal of classical Christian education is to cultivate wisdom and virtue. It's not just to do well academically. I'm gonna, I read an article. Wow. I read an article attacking classical education recently in the last week, and I haven't had a chance to respond to it, but basically he mocks this local school for the, for the pretentious um, goal that or claim that the kids are going to grow up having cultivated wisdom and virtue. It's not even a believable concept to the modern mind. Think of that. But if you're not cultivating wisdom and virtue, why are you ruining that child's life? Why are you taking so much of that child's life if you're not cultivating wisdom and virtue in that child? Is, Is that not evil? Seems like it is to me. So I'll end with that. Okay, Tess asks... Does the Iliad and the Odyssey read similarly? How are they different? I know Iliad comes first. Well, um, I wouldn't worry about what you read first, honestly. Iliad and Odyssey read very differently. Many people don't even think the same person wrote them because they're so different. The Iliad is a book, is a handbook on rhetoric to reduce it to, to uh, something reduced. The Odyssey is a handbook on storytelling. And so, so throughout the Odyssey... You have, you have Odysseus in particular telling stories for 100 different reasons, but constantly telling stories and never telling the same one. So at one, t- one time he does it at a fundraising banquet, uh, another time he does it to get out of a trap, uh, another time he does it because he likes to, he's testing uh, 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 the loyalty of a friend. There's all these different reasons for telling stories. And as the Iliad is the ultimate book on rhetoric, so the Odyssey is the ultimate book on poetics. Now that means that those two streams, rhetoric and poetics in Greek thought flow out of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So if you're going to study rhetoric and if you're going to study poetics, which is to say creative writing, storytelling, and you don't get to know Homer really well and keep reading him like every day for the rest of your life, then you'll be doing a disservice to yourself. You, you could still conceivably do well because Homer, Homer so dominates our whole literary tradition. Um, but why make it so hard on yourself? The other thing that happens though is that the Iliad and the Odyssey are like a diptych. You know what that is, where there's, there's two images and one, and you, look at, you can look at this one here all by itself and it makes sense. And then you can look at this one right here all by itself and it makes sense. But when you put them together, Then you compare them with each other, and they start to interpret each other. You can read the Odyssey all by itself, and it makes wonderful sense. And you can read the Iliad all by itself. And you won't look at either one and go, this doesn't make sense without the other.
0: But then one day you'll say to yourself, how is Achilles like Odysseus? And then your
2: world will change. So what Homer does is he gets you comparing things. And that in turn leads to a very profound dialectical process that becomes the habit of the Greek mind. And in that sense, not only, therefore, does, does Homer teach us rhetoric, not only does he teach us poetics, but he also teaches us dialectics. And he's, he's therefore, he, I mean, every Greek knew he's their teacher. He was the teacher of the Greeks. So they're very different, and you can never read them too much. Um, so, and do they read similarly? No, they're very different. You, you, would, you would conceivably not even know that they're by the same author. And they might not be, who knows? My, I have one theory that it's conceivable that the Odyssey was written by a disciple of, of the same, you know, the master of the school. How are Christian and classical rhetoric different? Okay, very, very concisely, let me answer that question this way. Classical rhetoric arises from the political arena. And therefore... It has to do with judicial and deliberative essay or addresses primarily and celebration. It has to do with decisions about the past, whether something should have been done, decisions about the future, whether something should be done, and then sort of um, epideictic or, or, or you know, commemoration, funeral services, um, uh, raising to the throne, things like that. So those are the three. Fundamental purposes of classical rhetoric. The ultimate and fundamental purpose of of Christian rhetoric, I would say Judeo-Christian rhetoric or biblical rhetoric is proclamation. Because when God speaks, he simply proclaims. And when he proclaims, he creates and he blesses. And so the difference is that with Christian rhetoric, it's not, it's not, for example, 1 Corinthians, right? Paul says, I did not come to you with words of human wisdom. He says I came and I proclaim to you Christ crucified. That's it. You proclaim Christ crucified. And you can get into you know arguments about evidence and so, so on and so forth, but ultimately it's the word of God proclaimed that brings things into existence and that brings things to life. So the ultimate form of Christian rhetoric is proclamation. However, the danger, therefore, of Christian rhetoric is extreme because everybody feels adequate to proclaim, right? Everybody feels that they can just speak the words of God, and that's just horrifyingly dangerous. And therefore, Christian rhetoric begins with repentance. It, be- it necessitates humility. And it has to be all about pointing to Christ crucified, the Christ crucified. And so that's the fundamental difference. Now, it includes the, the classical rhetoric, the, what is right about classical rhetoric, because Christians also have to make decisions about the past and the future, right? And when we do, we have to have discussions. But those discussions have to be guided by humility. And they have to be guided by resting in the proclaimed Christ who has been crucified and is seated at the right hand of God. If we don't argue from the perspective, in other words, if my position in a political debate sets aside the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Well, what am I what am I doing? I'm just arguing from my position. Christian rhetoric or a Christian argument would begin with
0: this fundamental premise. I am Christ's.
2: Christ has given me everything. It's all already mine. There's nothing, there's nothing for me to fight for. There's nothing for me to argue for. So, so, so as Paul says to the Corinthians, why not be defrauded? Right? If, if everything is yours, who cares if you're defrauded? but that's really hard to say that's really hard to believe in this world right and that's the spiritual perspective and that's how christian rhetoric is different from secular from non-christian rhetoric right for us it's got nothing to do with our needs because we don't have any it's got nothing to do with our advantages because we don't need any it's got nothing to do with our gaining things because we already have everything and if we can't see things like that, then we are not seeing things with the eyes of Christ. So that, that's where a certain disinterest comes in. How, so that's how they're different. Looking for it. Thank you, Abigail. Ha. Huh, yeah, the world does change, doesn't it? Yeah. And, if, and the thing about reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and Homer generally is that when you can read those books to some extent with the mind of Christ— you don't understand them less than the ancient Greeks. You understand them more. I mean, I, I, think, I don't think Homer understood Homer. And, and any, any great artist will tell you that, that they really don't know ultimately what they just did. They were following a muse. They were following some you know, inner insight or whatever. And it, it goes, art is transcendent. But God knows. God knows what's going on. And so if we have the mind of Christ and can read Homer with the mind of Christ, I think that opens him up to us in ways that, that, forgive me, but the pagans just, when I get asked why, you know, should Christians read pagan literature? My answer to that is only Christians should read pagan literature. Only because pagans read it and
0: believe it. They actually might make offerings to Zeus, for goodness sake.
2: That's a bad thing but in Christ, man. But we do have to make it an offering to God. We have to make ourselves an offering to God and the book we're reading. Okay, uh, question. Oh, should we avoid, this is a good question. Should we avoid books written specifically for children like Lamb, Shakespeare, or the Iliad for children? Um, The form is every bit as important to the child as the idea, sorry, the last bit. At young ages, does form matter as much or is the idea most important? Form matters even more because the form is sensory. In other words, they can perceive it with the senses. They can hear it. They can feel it. And they should be getting a taste for really good art. Having said that, good stuff for children is good. But, I mean, I'll just tell you that lately I've been um, subjected to a child's uh, TV show where every single song has the exact same timbre the exact same emotional setting it's it's tedious and I think to myself this is not something children should be (laughs) doing I mean you can't help it it's the world we live in so I'm not trying to make a case one way or another against how each of each of us raises our children because we all have to make our judgments right but the people who made that show should be punished right? because they have no respect for children, none at all. The same child who's watching that show can listen to Beethoven's Ninth for a minute or two or three minutes and love it. Right? So form is so important for children. And form fills out their emotions. It gives them contact with a deeper range of feeling. Which is important to children. They need to learn to manage their emotions, and that's one of the most important things music does. But that's but this was about books, and so I would say I would say that um, I would say that Lamb's Shakespeare is probably fine with the qualification that it is 19th century romantic English, and therefore nowhere near as good as Shakespeare. Um, but yeah, it's it's shorter. It's got that going for it. Um, you, you, and, it, and, it's, and it's prose. The Iliad for children, there's a million of, well, there's dozens of them. I like Padre Colum's Children's Homer very much because it is poetic. Um, I like the, the church, I think it's church, right? From the 19th century, versions of Homer's stories, very much. Um, I don't have any problem with le- reading children's versions of Homer any more than I do with uh, children's Bible stories. Right? which I do have problems with if they're not reverent, right? But, but you, have to, you have to treat the text with reverence and you cannot dismiss the form. See, this comes back to the whole thing about, about the distinction that was made in the 16th and 17th century where rhetoric was reduced to an ornament, right? So we teach children, like the idea is what's important. There's this kernel of an idea and they have to think about that and we worry to death about them understanding understanding is not the priority with children it's just not there's so little they understand heck there's so little i understand it's about it's about form it's about harmony it's about training perceptions it's about training sensitivities it's about it's about loving things with um with good with good forms um so children's literature is fine but it's got to be good it's, it, it can't just be it can't just be market driven an example of bad 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 children's literature is excessive okay whether it be excessively pastel everybody remembers forgive me for this i get in trouble all the time but you all remember veggie tales right so with veggie tales they had a, a red bouncing tomato. And this was, and they also had some witty humor, so it was, wasn't completely unforgivable. But what, what everybody knows is that little children respond to red things that move. Okay, that doesn't mean there's any nobility in it. It doesn't mean there's anything godly in it. It's appealing, forgive me, but it's appealing to the flesh. It's appealing to the body. And it's, and it's doing so... In a way that can either support or sustain the spiritual, but it's it's hard to sustain the spiritual when you're appealing to the flesh. So be careful about it. Be careful. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, Black ships before before Troy is is uh, it's it's okay. I don't think it's particularly well written. I think the art is pretty good. Um, it but it's it's okay. I, I mean, if you know, it would be fine to have. <laughs> I read the Classics Illustrated version. Remember those old comics from the '60s and '70s? That was my first reading of the Iliad. Really, it's it's not. It didn't kill me. Um, <laughs> um a few weeks ago, everything you've learned about teaching you find in Genesis one to three. Okay. Um. Yeah. Can you give examples? Sure um, i learned I learned about my medic teaching from the way Adam names the animals. I learned about I learned about assessment from the way Adam names the animals. Um, I learned about how you should not tell the student the point of the lesson at the beginning. In fact, you shouldn't even give him a direct assignment for the point if it's deep from Adam naming the animals. right? He doesn't know that he didn't know that he was supposed to learn that he's not enough by himself. He thought he was just supposed to name the animals. Well, the Lord was telling him, look, you can't do your job by yourself. And there's nothing here fit for you. So he makes the woman and Adam looks at her and realizes this person is adequate to the task. Now I can do what I'm supposed to do. And so as our Facebook today gives her a name above every other name. Right. I love that. so that's some examples. Um, Genesis 1 is all about the pattern that we should live our lives, I think. Um, teaching the form of poetry. Well, see, when we talk about teaching the form, be careful here, because I'm not talking about analyzing it when I say that with children. I just mean give it to them. Right? Let, them let them be reading great poems. I've told you all the story about when Katie was, what, four years old, and she was reciting Wordsworth to the, to the, to the kids at school. It was, my heart leaps up when I behold. Well, rhyme schemes aren't that hard for kids to hear. Meter, all that is very delightful. Just give it to them. Don't name it yet. That's another thing from the the, the, the Adam naming the animals I learned. Is you don't start out, you don't give the names first. You bring the animal first. And then let them name it. So let them play with a lot of, of poems. A lot of poems. And then after a while, then you start saying, now this is that kind of poem and this is that kind of poem. Can you tell me how they're like and different, right? So so, that's, so you bring in the names afterward. Um, so at what age do you recommend teaching the form of poetry versus only delighting in its beauty? Um, naming the rhymes, probably middle school for the most part. But you can do isolated ones. Right? You could say this is a rhyme scheme. You could even say this is a feminine rhyme scheme to an eight-year-old. You, you could, but I wouldn't give them a bunch of rhyme schemes. And I wouldn't give them a feminine rhyme scheme until they know what a rhyme scheme is. And I don't know if I'd use the word scheme. You might just say, this rhymes. Right. So you have to be very, I find this all the time on uh, emails, right? We constantly write emails to each other where the person who's reading it has no idea what the writer's talking about because the writer has all this context and, and maybe even a whole stream of emails that, that he's, he's building on. And I had to write to the staff at work this week. You got it. Don't, don't use pronouns. Don't use pronouns in emails from previous, when the antecedents in a previous email. Because the guy who's reading your email probably just read seven other ones. And has no idea what you're talking about. But we don't want to take that extra four seconds. Because it's not four seconds we're taking, it's mental energy. It's an act of the will and it does exhaust us. But the point is that that's how we work. We don't realize how little... other person understands what we're saying right we don't we're, we're not good at listening so we just don't realize how many things we say to the other person where the the word just it might be the most common word on earth but they don't know what it's referring to in this particular instance right so that's the thing with kids that so that you have to be so careful about the younger they are the fewer words they have especially academic words so be very careful about naming things that they that they don't know and and be very careful about giving too many names. To illustrate this, in the Lost Tools of Writing, by the time they finish level three, they've got something like 25 or 30 schemes and tropes. In my opinion, that's probably all they need, right? There's another 200 or so, but you don't need to know the name of every animal in the zoo, right? And if you know these basic 25 or 30, then the rest of them you can make up, honestly. You can can just do it. Just vary what you've got. Some people would argue that 25 or 30, well, most people nowadays would say 25 or 30 is too many. But so we compromised. Um, How important is it to know the naming of the rhyme schemes? It's important if you're having a discussion with a poet about his poetry. It's important if you're teaching them how to write poetry, because you want to be able to say, the benef- here's the thing, okay? the benefit of a name is that when you call it, the thing comes. Okay? So if I, if I know the six different, let's say I know what a masculine rhyme scheme is and a feminine rhyme scheme, and, or you know, whatever, I know certain kinds. If I know the name, it has a more secure place in my mind. If I have to describe it every time I think about it, then it's slippery. So the name pins it down in my mind. If you need it pinned down in your mind, then name it. And if you need your student to pin it down in his mind and be able to call on and use it, then name it. But again, just be careful about not giving them too many names too fast. But think about it. We have thousands of names in our minds. Thousands. We are we are namers. It's what we do. We name everything. It's kind of staggering how much we name things. So um, let's see. How important is it to name, to know the name? For practical purposes, it's important. For analytical purposes, it's important. For critical purposes. And therefore, older students should be able to name. But they shouldn't get names for things they haven't ever played with. They they, they shouldn't be naming animals they've never wrestled with. Um, Let's see. Read books that they're interested in, even if it's twaddle. I mean, there's a place for that, yeah. I read a lot of twaddle as a kid. Um, do you think it's valuable for them to read something that is fun to them? Yes, certainly. Um, being patient enough to model being a better, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> Why do you think I do all the talking here? Um, that way I can, I can give lectures on patience and listening. I'm really good at lectures on listening. Even ask Katie. Well, of course, she never listens. Um, how many times would you have a student read a poem before discussing it? Depends how big and long and complicated it is. Um, I, would, I would take most poems and begin to discuss them before I read them. And that would depend on their age. So what I mean by that is if you're familiar with mimetic teaching, I would prepare them. So I would get in a discussion about, uh, like in a fable, ants and grasshoppers. If I'm going to read um, Longfellow's Excelsior, I'm going to ask the kids if they've ever been to the mountains, if they've ever climbed a mountain, if, if they've ever seen a, a sheepdog, right? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to raise to their awareness things that they already know about the poem so that when they enter into the poem, they can relate, if you like, right? Because you can relate to anything you read if you've lived more than five years, right? You just need to know how. So that's how I would start. But if, if what you're talking about is discussing it, you know, breaking down rhyme schemes, all that kind of thing, uh, to, again, it just, I, I try to be very organic in the way I do these sorts of things. I try to, I try to let the discussion evolve. Um, maybe to do that, you need to, you need to have in your own mind a, a fair understanding of basically, I guess, how poems work. You should probably know what is the form of this given poem, um, what, what probably it's helpful to know, what time period it was written in. Um, but let the, poem, let the poem reveal itself, right? That's the thing about poems is that they do have a way of revealing themselves. And so in a way I'm tempted to say, just keep reading it until a discussion happens, right? Just, just read the poem and then have them read it again Maybe have them interpret it. And, and by interpret, I don't mean say what it means. I mean, dramatize it. If, if it's a narrative poem, have them play roles in it, right? Um, Shakespeare, obviously, is good for that because he writes most of the time poetically. Um, so I, I, I prefer to be looking at the poem itself to talking about the poem. I prefer to be letting the poem live through the, the kids in the classroom to talking about it. And the more time you spend actually poeming, the better the discussion becomes, right? And so so don't be afraid to actually be looking at or enacting or living in the poem. Uh, And then then start, the the easiest discussion I find is a simple comparison. Uh, It could be a formal comparison. How is this stanza like this stanza? How is it different? or it could be a a narrative comparison. How is this character like this character? How are they different? Uh, How is this action like that action? How are they different? Sometimes it might be worth it to, uh, as a summative, um, a way to gain control over what your mind is doing with the poem, it's often helpful to outline the plot. So, you know, if you're reading The Fairy Queen, you might actually say, where does he go first? Where, where does the Red Cross Knight go first? Who's with him? When, where does he go next? And just make a list of places. That's, that's useful. But not as a quiz, and not as a beginning point, right? To, to, say, to say before you've even read the fairy queen, he's going to go to these seven places over these pages. That's just, you know, that's like stomping on ants. It's just not, I mean, that's fun for kids, but not if you're the ant, right? So I don't know if I'm starting to talk in circles, but um, I would have them read it a lot before discussing it, and I would hope that the discussion just happens, right? Now, there's other things involved in discussing, like what does that word mean, right? If, if they start wondering what does that word mean or you observe that they don't know, then I would tell them. Um, uh-huh, Students will ask for the name of a thing or idea once they have clearly understood it. That's very true. They, they do. They always ask. Right. There, there would be, nothing's always, always, but this is always. Right? So, you know, given exceptions, they're going to ask. Yeah, read, read Gibbs. Okay, hey, Katie, why don't, why don't you, you've, you've had a lot of time reading. In fact, again, cross-culturally, you've been teaching kids to read who don't even speak English as their main language and had good discussions with them. You got anything to add to this? Probably or corrections. You want to correct me a those times here?
3: No corrections, although I thought I was going to have a correction when you said to discuss before you read the poem. I was going to contradict you, um, but I'm not going to. Um, Why Because you clarified what you meant. You were just building foundation. So
2: so you needed the sign interpreted? Yes. We almost had a comedy. Or would it have been a tragedy? (laughs) That's the difference, Uh, by the way. In a comedy, you misinterpret the signs but then you figure out what they mean so harmony is brought to the community. In a tragedy, you misinterpret the signs and you never figure out what they mean so this, the community, lead, so, so death happens. All right.
3: Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Over to you. Uh, oh yeah, I was just gonna expand a little bit some ideas because you were saying to have people um, read the poem multiple times and engage with it before analyzing it. Um, And that can sound awkward in a classroom or with your kids at home. Uh, So something that I've found to be really useful when I'm having students read poetry out loud multiple times um, is either, you know, doing it from different emotion Mm. uh, or different perspectives, of course. But one thing that's really interesting and always brings up great discussions I've seen in classrooms is having students do it out loud from the perspective of different characters in the poem. Um, so I've had students before do, um, the charge of the light brigade and one did it from the perspective of a soldier going to war. And then another one did it from a perspective of the wife who was waiting at home. And then, you know, another one did it from another perspective and then they all did them together. And that just brought about some of the greatest discussions that I've ever had in my class. Um, so thinking about repeating the poem as many times as possible from different emotional ranges, but also from different characters that might be, re- might be mentioned in the poem or like, might just be implied, um, that can just be a really fun way to engage with a poem. And it becomes analytical very organically, and you don't have to force it. It's just really, um, really natural. So, it's just I
2: like that I a lot because we're not, please understand, we're not arguing against analyzing poetry. We're arguing against killing it before you analyze it, right? Let the thing live so that they're participating in it. And this is a big deal. For example, this is why I love C.S. In fact, i probably learned this more than anybody from C.S. Lewis in his descriptions of of how much he hates the way poor kids have to learn. And yet they do have to learn. One of the things that's um, always amazed me I was thinking about this even today. that You don't care about this fact, but I was thinking about it while I was swimming. How, When I was a kid, there were plenty of songs that when I first heard them, I thought were really stupid. I mean, you know, pop songs. I just thought they were stupid. I didn't like them at all. And then I would talk to some friend and they would explain to me what was going on in the song. And I go, oh, that's cool. And then I, because I understood it, I liked it. Or I might not have understood. I, might, I, don't, I didn't know music at all. So my, my friend Chris was a guitar player. So he would explain to me what a guitar player was doing in the song. And from that moment forward, I would like the music. Right? There, there, that is something valuable. So so when you when you see what a great artist is doing, or even a good artist, when you see what they're doing, it does make you appreciate it more. So we're not in any means saying don't let them in on the secret, right? <laughs> That's not what we're saying. But don't don't leave it, you know. My friend Chris never would have given me a lecture on guitar
0: recording. He wouldn't have given me that lecture.
2: But when I started asking, then he would tell me. And that's what a great teacher does. uh, How does Hicks put it? um, It is the mark of an ineffective teacher to answer a question before it is asked. And that's why the most powerful thing we do for our kids is give them questions. Okay, you know what? We went way over again. You guys are bad for my self-discipline um these sessions have been a great blessing for me so you're welcome welcome comprehension exercises as part of the literature book um i almost never like them because i've never yet seen comprehension questions that actually had to do with comprehension um and i like words so when they don't have any meaning it bothers me all right thank you so much